0: That said that you can pick up your wiki proposals from MJ. So please, please that's our secretary, so please do that. Um, and follow the directions that I gave to you on your wiki proposals. You have uh, about a, well now you only have like a week to write. But it's not as bad as you think because how long does it really take you to write a report? Speaking of which, that I really recommend you, almost command you to to go, if you're writing a wiki article, to go to expositorswiki.wikispaces.org, no, .com, sorry. Expositorswiki.wikispaces.com. Yeah, and click on the About Us link on the left-hand side, and, and the reason for that is so you can um, read the guidelines for these wiki articles, all right? Please, please do that. These wiki articles are like encyclopedia articles. They're meant to be very factual, not personal, okay? Um, so just like the Encyclopedia Britannica doesn't have a lot of personal information, don't put any personal information. You just put, you just put what the text says, you just put the facts down, that's all we're looking for in an organized, clear fashion. Really simple. You don't need to tell me how this applies to your life. You don't need to tell me how this is devotional. You don't need to tell me how it makes you worship the Lord more. You need to do that in your heart, not on the paper. Okay? Uh, because, a couple of things here. One is, people are interested in understanding the facts. They're not always interested in you. So... <clears throat> Whether that's right or wrong, that's just the way it is. And then, um, also on those lines, if you like, put a whole Bible study lesson online, uh, you've kind of done people's job for them. So you don't, that's not the goal of this website. This website is not to be like where you can plagiarize sermons you know, <laughs> or something like that. The website is designed so that it helps you in your exposition, not do the job for you. So, please, it's just really simple. Don't have any I did this, or I think this, or I feel this, or you should do this, or we. That is not appropriate for this kind of writing, all right? So all first person and second person uh, pronouns are out. Um, You can talk about this person, one might believe, this may lead someone to the conclusion, something like that, but you do not use this leads us to believe, no, just stick with um, third personal pronouns, alright, third person personal pronouns. Uh, use Turabian, I've already said that before, so make sure you do that, Zotero can help you, if you need any help using Zotero, ask Roger. That's that's what he gets for sitting in on all these classes, uh, he just... I just cannot explain to you how helpful that thing is. So, But you need to do it yourself, and hopefully it'll work for you. All right, today, oh, one other thing. Um, obviously, next week, I'm here on Tuesday, but not on Thursday, right? That's when you guys come in to kind of peer check, peer review everyone's wiki article. So have a print copy, and then win Um, when you're all done peer checking each other I'll explain more about this on Tuesday yeah better and uh, someone can just bring all those to MJ and she'll give them to me she'll hold them for me so when I when I come back I can pick them up and we'll get them Um, but I won't be here on Thursday of next week I'll be at an international at a national international conference on justification and so um, (coughs) that's what I'm that's what we're all doing well, oh, yeah. What if we're not doing a wiki? Can we still come? Please be helpful. You know, be helpful and help people spot check. It's good for you, right? It's good for you to know how to edit something and things of this nature. Any other questions for me? Yofi Tofi? All right. Let's begin with a word of prayer and then I'll mention some things. Lord, thank you for your word and the tremendous plan that we see and how, no matter what, it puts you front and center stage and puts your glory as the utmost priority. Help us to capture that mentality in our own hearts. So when we are tempted to wander, when we are tempted to be apathetic, when we are tempted to lose heart or not persevere, we remember who this is all about, it's about you. And as we study now the book of 2 Samuel and get into some very dark times and help us still through it all to see your sovereignty and and your wisdom and your precision and your faithfulness to the covenant both in positive blessings as well as negative judgments. Uh, Make that real to us and help us to also see through it all how you have paved the way um, for your son and how precious he is So give these fellow believers here wisdom. Help them to write good papers, those that can really benefit the church. Uh, Give them the perseverance through all the trials that they may have to endure and to most of all honor and magnify and bring praise and renown to your name. So we ask these things. We ask for the illumination of your Holy Spirit now. In your name we pray. Amen. A lot to talk about. Some of it. See, you should always thank Roger because he always he always comes up to me with questions, and, and when he does so, it always gets me thinking, and and then I share some of those thoughts with you. But <coughs> um, one one thing that I might try to illustrate to you a little bit is um, and pardon the metaphor, to be sure, but I think it's sometimes helpful. Um, there is a certain alignment that the Davidic covenant, you guys know this, dictates. You need, remember, remember I've drawn this a lot, right? World, and then what? Israel, and then? Davidic king, right? This is a very important idea, that the Davidic king, he's the key to saving the world. And Israel And its promises is predicated upon the ability of the Davidic king. That's why the Davidic covenant, everyone remember this, is so central. It's the one covenant to rule them all. Because all promises are predicated upon the ability of the Davidic covenant. If David wins, Israel wins. And if Israel wins, per the Abrahamic covenant, the world wins. Do you see how the domino effect happens there? This is how the deck is stacked. Based upon this model, you kind of have this kind of orientation, watch. And like I said, pardon the slot machine, illustration here. You have David, the Davidic king, and then you have Israel at its perfect state, you know, we could put exclamation point, part point, and then the world at its renewed state, countering sin, death, the curse, and thereby the fall. Right? So it's like if you get these three things in the slot machine, it's a jackpot. You're a winner. Right? Uh, I've really never played slot machines except for those toy ones before, so I assume that's how it works. If I'm wrong, well, just bear with me. Right? I was like, Roger's in my office, and I'm like, have you ever seen the movie Top Gun? And I totally botched the, the, the movie illustration and I just made something up actually, that's not even how the movie went, but I mixed up several movies together that I read about on Wikipedia and it it all made sense. So here's the problem that happens. We know that this is how it's supposed to work. That's per the terms of the Davidic covenant. One covenant to rule them all. If you have a Davidic king who correctly wields the Davidic covenant sword, so to speak, all the promises are positive in his hand. Therefore, he will be able to fulfill for Israel everything that was promised, and therefore the world will get its blessings. That's the way it works. Yes? That's clear. Good. Here's what we have in history. David what? Fails. How does he fail? What's the epic event? Bathsheba. And what does God decree? The sword will never depart from your house. I will bring your house down. I will kill you. I will destroy your house, right? Everyone remember that? And that was that whole discussion I had. And where does that, Where does the fruition of that decree, what does it end up in? The exile. Remember that? Everyone remember this? So basically, <laughs> you kind of hit the slot machine. You know, there's no change. You know, it's all operated by God's grace. Uh, so, <coughs> you know, this is, this is what you have on the first roll. And Israel is shattered to bits. Because Israel has now gone into what? Exile. Good. And consequently, the world is also shattered to bits, right? Because they're all predicated upon this. And those of you in minor prophets with me, you understand this paradigm. However, because the curse has now been leveled against the Davidic dynasty per the Deuteronomic covenant, if you have someone who bears that curse... If you have someone who takes on the mantle of David, so to speak, and is the perfect king, and not only perfect in the sense that he does everything right, but he also has to end this vicious cycle of God punishing the Davidic kings, right? He has to bear that punishment. Then you can end all the Davidic curses that go against the king and institute what? The Davidic blessings. Everyone remember that. That happens where? At the cross. Cursed is the one who hangs on the tree. Right? This allows, and this event makes Jesus the one who truly possesses what it means to be the Messiah. He's overcome the temptations that David has failed at and Israel has failed at and the world has failed at. See? Right there. That's the temptation narrative. He has fulfilled all of God's wrath against Israel and the Davidic dynasty, and yes, even the world. And so now, he's the real king. He's done what the Davidic covenant has demanded. And now he can claim his kingdom. So now, through the cross, we have this guy on the second roll. Everything is okay. But the problem is, in redemptive history at this time, Israel still is a loss, and really the world is too. I mean, it's not like the world or Israel are saved right at the moment of the cross. So what you have in the meantime is this. notice these are is this a winning roll no why you don't have exclamation point and you don't have capital WORLD right and you see that and if you were mad at the casino you say they tricked me the casino master or who what was the guy who runs a casino called yeah the pit boss he comes up and says uh, sorry it doesn't match right it don't match right But you say it looks almost the same. Yes? That's what you say. It looks almost like that. Why? it's not, a, It's um, it should be a jackpot. And he's like, have a token. You know, it's like, but that's it. This is what we currently have right now. This is what we call the church. It looks like the winning combo, but it's not there yet. Does that make sense? And if you take me for Acts next semester, what I'll talk about is. <coughs> why the church is inaugurated on Pentecost, the Feast of Firstfruits, <coughs> excuse me, or the Feast of Weeks, is because the church is a foretaste of what is to come. It's a proof that God's plan of the Davidic covenant does work. It's just not done yet. Does that make sense to everybody? fruits are a testimony that something will come. Well, this is a, the church is a testimony that something will come. It's not just for the Jews, it's for Jew and Gentile equally. See that? What we are waiting for, though, is somehow, by some means and this is where minor prophets and the major prophets, so major and minor prophets come in, and Romans 9 through11 and Revelation and Daniel, you get the whole picture, come in and say, "In the end." because of what happens here at the cross, and because of who he is, because of what happens here, Israel can be restored back to its right position, and the world will therefore be restored to its right position, and that happens at the end, and when you have that configuration, you have the what? The jackpot. Does this make sense? This is kind of a microcosm of redemptive history, based upon a slot machine. All right. But the key that you need to understand from this for this class, minor prophets would be a totally different story, but for this class is the DC, the Davidic covenant. It's everything. Right? The Davidic covenant, now if, you know, if I was going to draw covenants, you have Noahic covenant, you have Abrahamic covenant, you have Mosaic covenant, and now you have Davidic covenant. And they all winnow down to this one covenant. I mean, that's a little oversimplification, because technically I think it runs more like this, but that's okay. You, we, don't need to, we don't need to totally do this. But the point is, everything now clings on the Davidic covenant. It becomes the paradigm of redemptive history, and it centers around one man, the king who can fulfill both the curses and the blessings. You've got to put an end to the madness of every king failing, right? You've got to put an end to that. Otherwise, even if you have all these blessings, you're going to have all these curses running around. Does that make sense? You've got to put an end to that. And you've got to also put an exact beginning to the king's ability to make things right for both Israel and the world. The cross is what takes care of that. And the resurrection, to be fair. yeah. Why is that, and how did it get to not being crossed out? Well, good question. The reason it's crossed out here is because nothing for them changes at the precise moment of the cross, okay. right? But what happens is, why, why do these people, why does this happen? And, like, we're, a lot, we're talking about, like, f- days, right? It's because they are impacted by him who is connected with that, and if we zoom forward, that's the way you have the winning combo, too. It's always through this one and that. So that would be Pentecost, essentially. Yeah, this would be at Pentecost, yeah. It would be actually the entire book of Acts, okay. and and now, and for a long time. Yeah? Well, if the last one isn't the real jackpot, what will that be? The real jackpot happens in the end times or what we call the end times. Yeah. Um, And that's when God fulfills his promises to Israel. So you get this. And when he does this, remember this paradigm tells you the world gets its promises. So then that's how you get that. But it's all predicated upon him because that's how the Davidic covenant is stacked. That's why it's so important. And do you also see through this why Jesus is so central and essential in God's plan? See, you have to have a hero. Well, how do you make one? It's easy. You let everything in the entire universe fall on his shoulders. That's how God rigged it. But it's good. It's not a bad ringing, right? It's not like rigging a race. This is a good one. This is a good one. That's why he's so important. What God said at the beginning, there will be a seed. Genesis 3.15, he makes it real when he tells David, and your seed will take the throne. Remember that? So beginning, well, okay, this is like the middle, our quarter, and, it, and it's true. It's all predicated upon Jesus. If Jesus fails, everything for the world falls apart. And it's, this is much bigger, although it definitely includes me and my salvation. It's much bigger than that. Any questions about this? That was just for free, sort of. That was just bonus. That was because of Roger. So if you didn't like this, blame Roger. If you did, give him a hug, you know. <clears throat> we are now, really, if we're charting redemptive history, between the roles, we're like right here. You are here. That's where we are right now. I mean, not like us, but in relative to 2 Samuel. Okay, <laughs> you are are here alright that's where we really are but I'm talking about per 2nd Samuel 13 here alright and that's where we need to turn to right now context and overview of this passage and I, I've got to lay this out for you very carefully uh, because because we're very funny about this sometimes let's first go to context and then we'll go to literary strategy. Here's the context. You know it. In the media context, you have the Davidic collapse. The Davidic collapse. David is supposed to be the right person. His throne and his dynasty is the right choice for Israel and the right choice for the world. This has been demonstrated throughout the initial part of 2 Samuel over and over and over again. That's what we've been going through this entire semester, which is almost over. It's incredible. That has elicited covenantal guarantees. But now the Davidic dynasty has collapsed, at least positionally, because of David's sin with Bathsheba. He became like a pagan king, as we talked about with the wordplay on scent. And because of this, he's no, God is righteous as capital K-I-N-G to judge him. Capital K-I-N-G to judge him. Both according to the covenant in Deuteronomy, as well as the covenant in 2 Samuel 7. There are covenantal guarantees for punishment. So you have Davidic collapse. You have, that means that God has to judge. And those specific judgments in 2 Samuel 7, this is point number three of context and overview, include the following. The sword will never depart from your house. In other words, instead of being strong and robust and protected, the sword will just continue to beat you down until... You are dead. Right? And it's not just you personally, David. It's your entire dynasty. Until you end the covenantal curse, this is an occurring, endurative state. Not only that, but if you remember specifically, I will raise up someone amongst you, uh, a friend of yours, to sleep with your wives. Right? Remember that? Everyone got those two things? That's both in retaliation for what David did to Beth. You slept with somebody else's wife, someone's going to sleep with your wife. Remember that? But also, it's a sign of weakness of the dynasty because David does that. God allows David to have the wives of Saul, remember this, to show that he had succession and power. The Davidic house will no longer have its centralizing power anymore for its own sin. And the, oh, one more thing. And I'll answer your question. David said, the man who remember the the man who stole the sheep, what should he pay? Four. And die. Good. And what did What did David learn in the story? You are the man. So the final punishment is I will replace your life with what? Four lives all three of those factors of sword against house, man sleeping with woman, and one life for four lives, the death of David's four sons, is going to be inaugurated and begun in this narrative, all right? That's all going to come into play. Because, and after I say this, I'll answer your question, Jeff. Um, Because of this, what did David do? He He spent all this time, a whole week, pleading with God to not kill his son. And God does so stating what? We have to go forward with this. Even though God showed grace to David because who deserved to die? David. God showed grace to him. That grace is not going to prevent the consequences of the Davidic sin from happening. The plan must go on. Because really, if God didn't kill that son, this, 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 and everything else wouldn't happen. The plan must go on. You have to destroy the Davidic dynasty in order for one to come out through the cross to put it to rights. He did it for the hero, his true son, Jesus. And because David is guilty, it's the right thing to do. Everyone got that kind of paradigm? okay ask your question um, I'm kind of curious about the. it's taking a step backwards a little bit um, why wasn't David or the other kings able to satisfy the curse of um, David I guess essentially yeah why, why couldn't they do it <coughs> two reasons first because they weren't perfect that would be a problem And so instead of satisfying the curse, they what? Perpetuated it. And the second reason, and the second reason is this, because none of them were David. To think about this, what's the only way you can reverse this? Is if you what? Start over. Who's the representative of the Davidic house? Hint. His name's in the name. David. No king was the perfect representative of the Davidic house. They weren't perfect, and they were not the perfect representative. Hence, why Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Because he restarts the Davidic life. Do you remember um, the scene in Lord of the Rings? Roger doesn't, because I just found out he hasn't watched it. But do you remember that one scene? You might not actually, I, it's in the ex- there's two scenes actually. I put them in the OneNote file, believe it or not. Because that's totally legal, under, under 10 minutes for educational use, you can put in parts of movies. I, I did a whole research thing on that. Okay, so, um, two scenes. There's one scene where Aragorn is at his mother's grave Okay, and they're speaking Elvish, which is really great because it's a mix of Old English and Hebrew. Anyway, so the the um, a Norse, Norse technically. Okay, anyway, but the um, he's standing there. You're like, how do you know that? It's a long story. So I had a friend who studied Norse at Aber- at uh, St Andrews, and uh, yeah, she was cool, but um, she studied Norse. Uh, the I mean. <laughs> I mean, it was just—I mean, like, who does that, right? I mean, she's like one of the four people who are experts in Norse in the world. I mean, it's great. Okay, Um, ancient Norse. Uh, So, the he's standing there in front of the grave, and and somebody's talking to him, and he says to the elf, says to Aragorn, "You, your mother knew you would be hunted all your life," and Aragorn says, "I." didn't want this. Now, that's obviously not comparable to Jesus. Uh, but Aragorn, or the elf says to Aragorn, you have no choice. You're the only one left. Do you see the logic there? Jesus has... If you destroy the entire dynasty and you resurrect, in a sense, or raise up one seed, then it's all on what? Him. That's the, there is no other choice. You are the one, and they and everything stands or falls upon your shoulders. Second scene is later. The elf Elrond, same elf as before. They're like about to fight in the final battle or whatever, or the second to last battle. It's when it's the battle before you know. Legolas shoots down an elephant. Remember that. So um, Aragorn's like, "What am I supposed to do? I can't do anything to save us. We're all going to die." Boo hoo and and they give him the sword. Remember that? And it says, you can summon the army to save. Well, what you have there is this. To save his people, the people uh, at Minas the king saves him. But in doing so, at that battle, he consequently saves what? Middle earth, right? Yeah, of course. Well, where did that connection come from, I wonder, wonder? You know, it's like, hello, that's the exact paradigm we have here. Jesus is set up to be the only person who can satisfy the criteria. That's why he's the new David. That's part of his job. That's a big emphasis in Matthew. And like I said, that's why at the end of Matthew, what? Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. I am the real Davidic king. So go tell the world I've conquered. Right, And that's the nature of the Great Commission. Okay. Where was I... Oh, that's because you asked that question. All right. Well, we're not there yet. That's actually like the good part, right? The Gospels. This is the dark part. I usually fast forward through these kind of parts in the movies because they drive me crazy. Uh, But like... I have, it, I have the Incredibles, and when I have great papers, I only watch the first five minutes and the last 30 minutes, and everything <laughs> else is not there. You know, I, don't want him, I don't want him to have to struggle through as an insurance salesman and all that kind of stuff, and his wife thinks he's cheating on... I don't want that. I just want him to kill bad guys and kill more bad guys. That's it. <laughs> and if I get upset at a student, then I start watching the middle, and then grades start to plummet. <laughs> <laughs> but here we are at the dark point, right? We're not here yet. This is the glorious moment. This is the moment the prophets have been prophesying about, but we're not there yet. We're here. You are here, right? And here's literary strategy. God has given judgments. He's going to enact them. He's determined to do so. That's the sign of the death of the first son, the unnamed son, because he was killed before he was circumcised. Good, As a sign, your line is going to be cut off from the people. Yeah, exactly. Literary strategy. This whole narrative is about Absalon's rebellion. You know that. That's what it's all moving forward to, is that Absalon rebels and does X, Y, and Z. The question you have to ask yourself is, Why in the whole wide world do you spend so much time, author of 2 Samuel, to go through all the laborious details to get, just tell me, right? Then it came about that Absalom killed Amnon, and he started a rebellion, and in the rebellion, Absalom slept with David's wife, had a sword against his house, and dies, you know, that, that's, I mean, why? I mean, this is an incredibly long narrative. You know, first you have to talk about all that Amnon does against Tamar, and Tamar is Absalom's sister, and you just, oh, and you just track through that, and then Joab has to get a woman to tell David a story, and you're just, it's like, oh, we know where this is going, why do you need to drag on all these details? There's a literary strategy. There's a literary strategy. The details here are important. They're not accidental. Here's the literary strategy. God will enact the judgment in ironic retaliation for what David did, just to make it clear that it's from him. That's why you've got to get those details. It's ironic retaliation. And we'll start to see how this works. The best way to do it is actually just to begin and you will begin to see, oh man, you have got to be kidding me. It's good. I really love this part. At least the dark side of me does, I guess. Okay, anyway, (coughs) verse 13, (coughs) or excuse me, chapter 13. We're only in verse 1. Now it came about after this. That's a key phrase. You know that. We've already talked about this before. That is a key story marker. After the Davidic covenant, there was, and it came about after these things. And those were positive. Remember that? And then it came about after these things. And that was supposed to mark the. If one's positive, then the other one is negative. Good. That's chapter 10, remember? And David starts to send, and it goes very, 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 very downhill. This, after these things, marks the inauguration of the judgments. Officially, And it marks the inauguration of the judgments officially. Now it was after this that Absalom, the son of David, stopped right there. Because, what should you be asking yourself at this point? No, not yet. Because you don't, I mean, they just eventually die. And the only guarantee is the first son the unnamed child. What's the first question you need to be asking yourself here? See, you're just too familiar. You know who Absalom is and you don't even know how he dies. But let's say this is the first time you've read 2 Samuel. You've heard the story. What would be the question you ask? Who is Absalom? Absalom? I think I've heard about him before, right? And you have. Where? Where? chapter 3 good second samuel 3 and what context is that in listen wives and the children listen wives and the children what did we talk about wives and children before what's violated Law of the king. yes which are gals, gals, gold, that's good that's good response time gals gold giddy up deuteronomy what 17 good deuteronomy 17 Kings cannot multiply women. Kings cannot multiply horses. And kings cannot multiply money. Money, marriage, machinery. No, it's not going to work. Uh, three G's is much better. I like Dr. Boyd's model. Deuteronomy 17, very important. And so here, it looks like David's strengthening his kingdom, but what is implied? What is the author trying to tell you? This is going to be the cause of his downfall. And now what do you have? It is. Remember, what got him in trouble? It was him multiplying women. It was uncontrolled lust. It was uncontrolled passion for power. It was uncontrolled distrust in God. I'll trust in a big house. I'll trust in a big family rather than trusting in Yahweh. I'll tell you what happens when you have a big family. What do you have? This whole story come out. Do you see that? Ironic retaliation. What you thought would save you (laughs) It doesn't work out so hot. See how that works? And it's doubly delicious because it's not just that he has a big family, it's what? He multiplies women, that gives him the sin of Bathsheba, and now that same sin, what? Directly relates to why Absalom exists. Because Absalom comes from a different wife. If David had been monogamous, none of this would have ever happened. God says, gotcha. Oh, but it's even better. Oh, yeah. Had a beautiful sister. Huh? Illusion? You might not catch this immediately, but you should. <laughs> exactly. They're parallel. Absalom is Confusing because he's kind of parallel with who? Uh Uh-uh, Uriah, the sister of Uriah, or the sister of Absalom is like the wife of Uriah. They're both beautiful. So now you're at a very confusing moment. And now God has David right where he wants him. I'll use your sin against you twofold. Yeah, so who's Absalom's, mother? Absalom's mother is actually a Geshurite, <coughs> and she's a foreign. Well, I guess uh, mm, okay, she's a foreigner. We could so say that. Her at all? No, Second Samuel three should mention. Oh. Yeah, should mention her. See that these are the questions you're asking. Where did where did Absalom come from? Who's his mom? You know, we know we obviously know his dad, but who's his mom and all that kind of stuff. That would push you back to 2 Samuel 3. But when you get there, you realize, oh man, this was a setup. This was totally a setup. By God. It was good. It's very talented. <clears throat> and Amnon, the son of David, which should also do what? Push you back to 3. Yes, 2 Samuel 3. Who's Amnon, right? That's what you should be asking. Who's this guy, Amnon? And you find out he's the what? Firstborn son. That's important. He's the firstborn son. Absalom's the thirdborn son. And Kiliav, whose name could mean weak, (laughs) he probably died. That's why his name means weak. Hypothetically, some some have argued that. I think that's pretty convincing because you don't see him anywhere in this text. So now, number third son becomes what? Number two son and now it's number 1 versus number 2 but if you're really thinking hard it's number 1 versus number 2 versus who Solomon because remember after God kills the one son he gives David a what another son whom he loves and has chosen remember that so it's Amnon versus Absalom versus Solomon yes where are we like How? Yeah, most people estimate like maybe a year or less. Some people say up to six. That to me is a stretch. But this is pretty recent. This is pretty raw, <coughs> and it has to be for the rest of the chronology to totally pan out well. I think that would be my personal thought. But the line for me now? we're in the latter half. We've crossed out of the, you know the forty years that he reigned. We're at in the latter twenty. So it's it's all going downhill now. Um, yeah. And if I was in history of ancient Israel, I, we could explain this entire conspiracy that Absalom had through the view that he was trying to steal the throne from Solomon, right? And how do you how are you going to do that, right? Historically speaking, how are you going to do that? You have two options. You can either kill Solomon, which is going to be really hard, right? Because Solomon's probably under what? Guard. And he's a little young to do anything wrong to you that would merit something like this, right? Or you could do something else. Exactly. But who's going to enforce that Solomon gets in? David. David. So what do you have to eliminate? David. David. You have to put yourself as firstborn in line and get rid of David, huh? What does Saul? What does Absalom do? Kill the firstborn. He kills the firstborn, and what does he then do? Revolt against, the revolt against the king. But you see, Absalom, he he's good looking, which means he's not what <laughs> smart. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just joking. That's not necessarily true. But the Bible emphasizes his. Good looks, not his smartness. And so from a historical perspective, where did Absalom get this idea? I'll give you a hint. The guy's name starts with a G, but that's not his name, it's his relation. <laughs> grandpa, remember, what did I tell you? Don't mess with Grandpa. Grandpa told him how to do it. You're like, who's, gra- who's Grandpa? Who's Grandpa? You tell me. Uriah. Not Uriah's Grandpa. Bathsheba's grandpa, Ahithophel, whose word was like the word of God. It almost worked, right? If it weren't the fact that Absalom became so dumb that he stopped following Ahithophel. And Ahithophel commits suicide. See, this is historical history of ancient Israel playing out. But God is using it, and let's see how he does it. Okay? <coughs> I love grandpa. He's so terrible. Okay, anyway, uh, the, he's just like so smart. Like, <laughs> but God's using him to do all this. So God's actually the one who's really smart. Duh. Absol- Amnon becomes so frustrated because of his sister that he becomes ill. And Amnon can't really do anything with her because they're really close relations. So Amnon has a friend whose name is Jonadab. And Jonadab is actually... David's nephew. They're all in the family, which makes it impossible for David to what? Rebuke Jonadab. See that? It's, if it was an outsider, what could David do? You betrayed me. I'm going to kill you. But this is my older brother's son. I can't do anything. See, that's why it's emphasized. He's the brother. He's the nephew of the king. He's the brother of the king and his son. And so, Jonadab says, what's what's the problem? Okay? And you know that. (coughs) That he loves Tamar, the sister of my brother Absalom, like the wife of Uriah, right? Parallels there. And here's the funny thing. Lie down, here's Jonadab's advice. Lie down on your... What's so interesting about that? David was lying on his bed when this whole thing started. It's like, huh, just do what your dad did. See that? You're trapped, David. You're trapped. (coughs) And, oh, by the way, this is going to get a very powerful motif of what we call plotting. Plotting, like wise plotting. Um, Because David had a what? Plot. Did he not? He had a plan to deceive and to distract. That's why he sent the army out. Remember that? That was why everything... He's the master schemer. And so you're going to have a series of three schemes against David. This is the first one. (coughs) And so here's the first scheme. Lie down in the bed like your father did and pretend to be ill, okay? And ask for your sister to come and give her some food and all this kind of stuff. So Amnon lays down and pretends to be ill, just like Dad pretends some things. And Dad comes in, who's David. And what does Amnon ask? yeah let's get Tamar to come and then she can bake for me some bread right the word for bread here anyone have their Hebrew Bible okay Uh, the word for bread here (coughs) is the word for heart and most people have suggested that's because this is like some kind of heart shaped bread you know or like love loaves or something like that you know Uh, but it's more sinister than that What's going on? Amnon is already hinting at his intentions, right? He's not not just wanting, hey, give me a pot of stew, right? Or something like that. He wants, it's not just bread, it's that his heart, what? Is baking for the girl. But does David see this? No. Just like David fooled everybody, but Yahweh, now... Yahweh turns the entire table on David. You're not the only one who can plot here, buddy. I cannot plot you. And so David what? Sent. (laughs) Heh You sent for Bathsheba. You sent like a pagan king, you sent, you sent, then you sent for Bathsheba to bring her into your household to make yourself look like a hero, then God sends, and at first you sent for your own pleasure and for your own benefit, now you send for your destruction. Now you send for your own destruction. Because Amnon coming in, or Amnon coming in and sending out for Tamar is the death blow to the Davidic dynasty. So David sends for Tamar she comes in Amnon has her bake those cakes which should have been a big hint but no one catches it because he's good at deceiving like his father does and even better than his father does and just like David abuses his power (coughs) to manipulate it so that he can be with Bathsheba alone what does Amnon do? Amnon uses his power to send all the servants out. What's funny is that David gets all the servants to come and Amnon sends them all out. And Amnon attempts to rape Bathsheba, but here's what, or excuse me, attempts to rape Tamar, and what does Tamar say? Read it exactly for me. Stop right there. For such a thing is not done in Israel. Irony? Tell me. Yeah. David already did it. Tamar is highlighting the whole tragedy of this situation. This, these kinds of things don't happen. You can't do this. No, it already happened. And it'll happen again. Sadly. Sadly because it's part of the judgment. Yeah? could she referring to um, incest? Oh, oh, no, no, no. She is referring, she, she's not just referring to incest because they are technically only united by a father, perhaps. But the, but the technical thing she's talking about specifically is rape. Even more than that, she might not be thinking of David, right? This is what we call dramatic irony where the reader knows more than the speaker. She's just thinking about her and Amnon, but her words are actually condemnation against the entire house. These things are not done, but they were. They were. And so Amnon now is parallel to who? David. And Absalom's parallel to who? Uriah. Now this is going to be funny. I mean, in a good way, bad way, whatever way you want to put it. Amnon to David Uriah to Absalom it'll be an interesting question yeah that's what some people will do uh, they'll parallel with her parallel tomorrow with her this is where some analogies break down but remember always the fault is upon who David. And always the fault is upon who? Amnon. So we have to kind of go with this. And the difference to me would be Tamar's innocence is overplayed. She says all the right things. She cries out. She does all the you know, she not only does says all the right things, she does all the right things, you know. So she's totally pure. And you would expect in the parallels, if we're dirtying up David like Amnon, that you would also, then, if you're going to make a strong parallel, either dirty up or really, really clean up Bathsheba, just like we did to Tamar, but that's not the case. The only thing that's comparable between the two is their beauty. Continue. We haven't. F- oh, uh huh. I had a question about earlier. Still, so, um, doesn't that seem weird? Like, if, if the guy is sick, why would he want to make friends? What, what do? Do yeah. All these things show you that this is a really dumb scheme. But who still falls for it? David. Mostly David. You think you're the best schemer, David? You think you can trick everybody? Look, you'll you'll see this. Because something else will happen and you'll be like, Oh, David caught on, right? That he's like not that quick, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, but he didn't catch on. Well, I don't believe this. So he gets duped the first time, 100% really bad. But something else will happen, and it's like 95% bad, but that's still bad. Okay? It's like F versus F minus. You still fail, right? It doesn't matter. (coughs) You know, like G, Okay, this, that would be like this grade. It's a G, you know, what does that mean? It's so bad it can't even be an F. Uh, you know, we have to write it down, and so the next one's F minus, and the final one's just an F. Uh, it's all fails. Anyway, um, where was I going with this? Oh yeah, finish reading off the verse. right there, write down the word for fool. Nabal. N-A-B-A-L. Two reasons why this is important. One of which I'm not going to tell you yet. The second of which I will tell you right now. A, this kind of fool is not like someone who's dumb or makes a mistake. This is this is a very serious fool. This is not an apostate. That would be like Casile, But this is a this is someone who's perpetually in antithesis to God's wisdom and purposes. People like this are despised and you want to get rid of them. All right? The first reason why this is important, I'll tell you in like a couple of verses. But just rem- just remember, fool. Here Tamar is the epitome of wisdom and rationality. But Amnon won't listen. He overpowers her and lays with her and rapes her. It's very tragic. Next page. So after this moment, Amnon hates her with a great hatred. And and does what? What does he do to her? He sends her away just like just like dad sends away. And Tamar, just to highlight how terrible this is, says what? The sending is worse than the... what you have done to me. And isn't that true? Remember, once again, dramatic irony plays. David didn't just sleep with Bathsheba. he sent to kill what? Uriah. And then he sends for... Her to come back. The sending is always worse than the act. And with these words, what is going on is God is tacitly condemning the entire house. But he wouldn't listen to her, so he calls his young man, highlight that word, very important, to throw out, to send out this woman. And Tamar signals that she had been violated by uh, ripping her garment. By the way, it's the, she, her garment, a katona pasim, is the same garment that Joseph wore. So it, it ain't stripes, okay, or multicolor. It's a long-sleeve garment. And that's what Joseph wore, and that's what she wore. It signals royalty and prestige. And for her, also, along with that, virginity. marriageability. I guess, would be a better way to put it to be technical. She tears it and she cries and Absalom comforts her, right? Absalom comforts her and protects her. He appears now to be what? What? Yeah, and actually is good, right? So he's kind of like even more like who? Uriah now. Huh? Appearances are everything though. Contrast his action and ability to protect and have justice which makes Uriah better than David and Absalom now looks better than David. What does David do? What does David do? He gets... What's the problem? There are actually two. They're linked to each other. Yes. He just gets angry, but he doesn't do anything. Absalom, what does he do? He says something, and then he does something, right? He takes and protects Tamar. David is supposed to be a what? king. He's supposed to institute justice. This is a gross injustice that has occurred. He's supposed to be the one who makes a verdict. Instead, all he does is get mad. He doesn't do anything. But what should that make you ask? Okay, that's a good question. I'll tell you that. He has two options. The the most straightforward option is he can make Amnon marry Tamar. He can make Amnon marry Tamar and pay 50 shekels of, of money. Which isn't the best opp- opportunity, but also he could do this. He could do this. He could argue <coughs> that Tamar, that this rape was so unacceptable, he could put him to what? To death. That's another possibility. David does have that authority, even though, yes, she's not technically engaged i.e. engaged to be married. I think the fact that she was marriageable uh, means that she could fall under this law of Deuteronomy 22-25 and therefore he could kill her. or Or excuse me, David could kill him. But what's the problem with either solution? And this is what the narrator has been endeavoring to make you see. Yes. If David kills Absalom, then David looks exactly like what? What he did before. Right? You killed. Or excuse me. If David kills. No, 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 no. We got it. No, not yet. We're, I can't go there yet. Hold off on that. This will come out later, what you just said, but there's something else with Bathsheba. If David kills Amnon. He deserves to die too. So it's like, how can you judge somebody if you are, if you've done the exact same thing? That makes you a tremendous what? Hypocrite. And David can't do that. So all he can do is get mad, but his hands are tied behind his back because he can't do anything. And this does two things. This makes David look less competent Right? This makes David look completely less competent, which opens the window for verse 22. Absalom did not speak to Amnon either good or bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. At this point, who is going to take action? Not David, but Absalom. But that makes Absalom look more like a king. David is losing control. But who caused... Do you understand that this is the perfect crime to to destabilize David. Do you see that? Because it's the only crime he can't fight against. If it was murder, he could he could go after them. Yeah, I killed you right, but it wasn't a what? It wasn't a battle. I didn't lay a hand on him directly. See that? If it was theft, yeah, I stole <laughs> kind of in an abstract kind of way. It wasn't the same thing. Does that make sense to everybody? But if it was rape, David can't say, I kind of did that in an abstract kind of way. Right? You can't do that. And so God says, got you. All right, you? Do you think the people were abused by his lack of action? Of course. Of course. What are you... David, this is a royal scandal. You've got to show the integrity of your kingship. But he can't he has none. This situation brings out what happened before, in secret. You see what God's doing? He's slowly exploiting him and dethroning him. See how that works? That's how this Davidic thing, remember what we said? Davidic king, how do we know he's the right one? One, because personal he is, and then what? Military, and then what? Political unification, we're starting to undo the personal and we'll get to the military soon. Yes? So I thought the discussion, I mean, chapter 11 with David Bathsheba, that she, it wasn't a rape that she voluntarily really came. So then this, the author makes it clear that Tamar did not. Won it. So how, can I can see how it come out of David Bathsheba, but that was definitely a voluntarily. So What, why is it so? Because good? you make... In American culture, we make a tremendous distinction between rape and adultery. In Israelite law, the distinction is minimal because they're both sexual perversions. And so David can't do anything to Amnon because in essence, they've done the same crime. They've violated the same principle. And so David's trapped. If he judges Amnon then what does he have to do? Judge himself. This is why I call it the Achilles heel. It's the one sin David can't combat. And it's the one sin that God is going to use to open up the entire opportunity, of, a window of opportunity to wipe out and let the sword come against David and all these kinds of things. Okay? There's another question. Nope? Okay. Next page. Now, it came about two full years later and that you have all these sheep shearers. <clears throat> and this puzzled me a little bit because why do we need to talk about sheep shearers and all this kind of jazz? And But there's a reason. It's a reason I told you before. What was it? Fool. Fool, yeah. That's right. Nabal. Where have you heard that name before? Yes, well, Abigail's husband is named Nabal and he was a what? He, was, he owned a lot of sheep and during the sheep shearing festival, yes, he dies because he's a fool. Can we call this poetic justice? What did Tamar say? You will be like a fool. And Absalom says, good, I'll make it happen Just like before, right? Another plot is hatched. See how that works? Everyone follow the logic there? Another plot is hatched. Yes? In the ancient Eastern mindset, was there more of like paying attention to making stuff repeat like this than there is like in US culture? Remember the Alamo? Yeah. That's that's one thing. I mean, we do have poetic justice like that, right? Yes, for sure. I'll give you an easy example, that applies now. Why did the attackers attack on 9-11? Do you know? Mm. Battle of Vienna, September 11th. The Muslims were driven back. That was the breaking point of the Muslim-European war. 9-11. So what are they saying? We're back. Why do they want to build a mosque by the sight. Of course, it's to remember. I mean, I'm not commenting, you know, if they want to do it, I'm not going to get all upset because I understand God's sovereign and what they need is not me to retaliate, they need the gospel, right? But I know exactly what they're doing. Everyone knows. Why, did, why do you have a big gold dome in Jerusalem? Okay? And you're like, oh, because it's a holy place. No, the holy place is like 30 meters away in the gray dome, you have the gold dome, which everyone takes a picture of because we own this place, right? And it's not just Muslims that do that. Israelites do that too, right? Everyone does that. It's a cultural thing. You know, th- I'm not trying to bash on one versus the other. It's just the culture. Does that make sense? We just see it more because the major interaction we have with ancient or near Eastern culture is through them. But it's, it's everywhere. You always try to, You always try to rig it. Isn't it? Think about the movies, right? The best movies are when they rig the situation so like it's a revenge, so that it's exactly the same problem as before. And then they kill the person in retaliation so that they realize, right? Case in point, Counting Monte Cristo, right? Of course, you're like, oh, I love this moment. you know, oh, no, no, yeah, of course. <coughs> I mean, I have Count of Chris Cristo, the whole book, on my phone. I just read it from time to time, you know. And, and the and the and the reason for that is the reason the book is so intricate is because the revenge like that is sweet to the human flesh. Well, guess what, Absalom's doing. I'm going to get justice. You made my sister like this, and you became the fool. I'll kill you the fool's way. See that. So he has a plot. That's the main point that you need to understand. And he's going to ask Daddy to authorize the plot, yes? And remember, the last time was epic fail, right? He doesn't even see through Amnon's obvious scheme. But what happens when Absalom talks to David? Absalom says, hey, come on, what?" let Amnon go and what does David ask? Why should he go with me? Yeah, why should he go with you? And what do we... And isn't that a good question? I mean, like, hey, I know you guys aren't getting along very well, so why do you want Amnon to go? And David, it's like, oh, you saw through the plot, finally! You know, you failed the first time, but hey, second time's a winner! And then what happens? Does Absalom even give a reason? No, he just keeps saying, come on, come on, let him go, let him go. He just presses on him. That's it. There is no explanation. And David's like, what? Okay. Okay. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Like, how could this happen, right? I mean, okay, it's like, uh, you know, you hate your brother, everyone knows that. Can I take my brother into the alley? Can I take my brother into the alley? No. Why would you want to do that? Oh, come on, Dad, just let me. It's like... I think a father would be like, no, I think I know why you want to take him there, you know, it's like, and here, it's like, well, I guess so, uh, why not, what could go wrong, you know, and David tries to do a counter scheme, which is what, Send, sends the rest of the sons, which to me is absolutely ridiculous, because one, if all the sons, think about this, if all the sons are really gunning for number one, who is who? Amnon. And number two, if all the sons think what Amnon did was terrible and they want his position anyway, what are they going to do? They're all going to want to kill him. So it's like, hell that's not protection, That's stupidity, you know like, That's foolishness, huh? Why does ask at first for the king and his servants to?: Because you know it won't happen. It's a scheme. It's a, it's a clever scheme. Oh, Dad, can you come? Of course you can't. Oh, no, son, you know. Oh, Dad, I just really love you. I want you to come. How about Amnon? After all, he's just like you, the firstborn. Well, I've never thought about that. You're right. Well, let's just... Wait, why do you want Amnon? Oh, Dad, just do it, okay? Okay, okay, Absalom. David is easily manipulated right? David is easily manipulated, particularly by this son called Absalom. Because it's hard to judge Absalom when Absalom looks a lot like who? Uriah. Do you see David's dilemma? Got you. Mm-hmm. Because David knew that if if he hadn't sinned with Bathsheba, Absalom wouldn't be dead. This is all a fulfillment of what had happened before. Yeah. There's a lot going on there, including being foolish. But there's a lot going on. We'll get there when we get there. Does this theme of, like, a younger sibling wanting to, like, overthrow an older sibling continue because it seems really prevalent right here that like they want to like overturn the other but it's like do we continue to see that or is that really abnormal no you, there's 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 times when it happens um but that might not be necessarily what we might call a theme per se as much as just a reality of the times your old the oldest guy is always going to get you know the job get the throne you know that's what that's what's going to happen and the younger one wants that position so he has to out the older guy does that just show like their their like moral degradation yeah yeah oh yeah yes Yeah. Torture, like not punish or not do anything. Or, like, not even, I don't know. Yeah, the reason it's not mentioned is because uh, he wants your attention to be on this. David can't do anything. He's angry, of course. Why? Because he is the father. And what this guy, what his son has done is wrong. And he knows that. And he gets just as angry here as he does against that one guy. You see it's it's a perfect repeat. Against the one guy who had the lamb. Remember that? Hara ma'od, very angry. It's just that in both cases what's the phrase? You are the man. So you can't do anything. Right? In the first case with the lambs, you're the man, you can't do anything. In this case, you're also the man, so you can't do anything. You're trapped. Yeah. Grandfather. Uri- or, uh, yeah, her father is Eliam, whose father is Ahithophel. And how, how do you know that from... You go... Two things. One is, um, you look at the list of mighty men. That's the easiest way to do it. Look at the list of mighty men and look at <coughs> Uriah and look at Eliam. And you look at Eliam's father. Uriah the same one in oh, at the same Ahithophel you mean? Yeah. Uh, Because you don't have that many Ahithophels, and it makes sense, arguably historically speaking, because they're all part of the royal court together. Just in terms of who's like the to. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But we haven't gotten there yet. When we get there, I'll give you a further explanation. Because, like I said, there's two points. I just gave you the easy way, but there's a more involved way to make my point. But. I'm running out of time, and I've got, to, I've got to get through chapter 14 so you see this. Otherwise, it's kind of like, I don't know, falling off a cliff or something. Uh, so, Absalom says, this is, this is good, he, he commands his servants, literally his young men, cross-reference, Amnon commands the young man to what? Get her out. Absalom's like, I'll set this up exactly the way it was before. Young men, you kill him. Strike Amnon, put him to death. Have no fear, because have I not myself commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. What does that sound like? Who does that sound like? Not just Joab. Joshua, more importantly. Joshua. What is, remember, what did I say David was? He's like the new... Joshua, because he's the guy who's going to lead the conquest. And what has Absalom done? Again, put himself as king. I'm the king. Not my dad. My dad's weak. And so when Absalom's, or when Amnon's heart is married, what's the wordplay? You baked, you made my sister bake heart cakes. So when your heart is married, I'll take you out. See that? It's very poetic justice here. And it's a tremendous plan. And it makes Absalom look very noble, doesn't it? And so the king's sons run away and now the report comes to David saying Absalom has struck down all the king's sons. Not one of them is left. And he immediately weeps because what does David realize? It's not just that his sons have died. It's what? It's what? Not just his fault. His line is cut off just like God said. Remember? God said, the sword will not depart from your house anymore. It won't. I'm going to bring you down. And what does he think? God has done that. And in fact, it's begun here. Right? Remember? The three things. Sword will not depart from your house, man will sleep for your wife, and What? four children will die. You have one, number one, begun. Number two hasn't happened yet. And number three has also what? Advanced another step. Because a second son is dead. Jonadab, so now you have the plotter, David, who meets the original plotter, Jonadab, who helped to make Absalom plot another plot. And Jonadab says, hey, it's going to be okay. And here's what you have. A series of parallelisms. Absalom versus, in verse 34, the other sons. Absalom flees. What's the problem? And what's the problem with David's response in general? He doesn't act. He doesn't do anything. He's completely disabled. What should he have done to Absalom? Absalom. pursue him and kill him that's what a king should have done but he doesn't so Absalom escapes making him look like a mastermind and making David look weak do you start to see what's going on through one small one sin there's this whole window of opportunity open for Absalom to dethrone David so why didn't they go? we don't know well I do know but you don't know yet. And that's what you're asking. You're just like, dude, what is up with you? What is, what is your problem? The sons survive. They come back to the king. Absalom goes out. And here's the next contrast. The king and his sons start to what? In verse 36. They start what? Weeping. And they're crying. And what does Absalom do? Verse 37. He flees. They're weak. They're weeping. They can't control the situation. And Absalom is in perfect control. And in fact, he's so perfectly in control that what does David do when he flees? He mourns for him. See? It's like David mourns for everybody. He's completely weak now. Does that make sense to everybody? Even he weeps for one son, but then he weeps for another son. He's torn. And here's the problem, verse 39. And this is what causes tremendous difficulty. The heart of David longs to see Absalom, but what? He doesn't do it. Why not? Because David's still smart. What does David understand Absalom to be? A threat to his power, right? The sword will never leave your house. And one whom you know, who is your friend, will sleep with your What is David trying to prevent? Prophecy number two from happening. See how that works? But, next page, that can't happen because David has failed as a king and that comes back to bite him. That provides, that one failure provides the window of opportunity God needs to exploit the entire security of the Davidic dynasty. But what's the next thing? It's not just David as a person, then it's what? His military might. As encompassed by who? Joab. So the next phrase. This is fascinating. Now Joab, son of Zeruiah, perceived that the king's heart was inclined. That's a bad translation. The better translation is, was against his son. It's not inclined. The preposition all does not mean inclined. It means against. And I can prove it to you later. But just even in context, think about this. Does David love his son? Yes. Does, he, does his heart Is his heart in his one sense inclined to him? Yes, but he doesn't. what? Bring him back because he knows he's a threat. So his heart is still against his son. What is job trying to do? Get Absalom back to what? To what? Overthrow. David. Why? Come on. Why is he mad? Because he killed his friend, Uriah. Yes. He has lost now the military. So Joab hires a woman, right? Irony. David's not only David's weakness but by a woman, you were condemned. Bathsheba. Now by a woman, I will bring true everything I spoke to you about the other woman. See that? Yes? If Joab wants uh, to come back, why does he side with David later? Why does he not? Oh, we'll, we'll get to that. There'll be a reason. Because Yeah, there'll be a reason. It happens actually in the next chapter. But we'll get there. So the woman falls on the ground and she says, David, oh, by the, she starts to tell a story. Like who? Nathan. Nathan. This is the third plot. And remember I said it's like F to F minus to F plus, I guess. I mean, this is the F plus scenario. David. Nathan was what? Give me judgment. Right? This woman is what? Give me judgment grace. Give me mercy. Right? And the first time, David falls into the trap, and he gives judgment, but the judgment is against himself. This time, the woman asks for mercy, and David what? Grants her mercy to allow Absalom to return for his own detriment. Do you see how that works? David can never win. God just brings in all. God just repeats what David has done over and over and over again, and lets it spiral out of control. Oh, you saw Nathan? Okay, let's see the woman. Oh, you saw Bathsheba? Okay, see this woman again. Boom, 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 boom. And now Absalom, whom David was trying to prevent from coming back, has now what? Returned. But why does she want him to come back? Oh, because she doesn't necessarily want him to come back. Who wants him to come back? And Joab hires her to explain it to him because he does have a weakness for women. And so the woman says, why have you planned this thing on the next page in verse 13? Why have you planned this thing against God's people? The word against there is the same word as Joab saw that David's heart was against Absalom. But here's the funny thing. The woman says, by keeping Absalom away, you're against the people. Now, the people's wish of bringing Absalom in is counter to whose wish? David's wish, right? David wants to keep him out. The people want to bring him in. That means the people and David are not unified. So now you have the breaking apart of the military. And what was the final step I warned you about? Political unification. It's coming to an end. Joab... (coughs) David figures out who started this whole thing and who was it? It was Joab. So he calls Joab in and says, I'm going to do it. Good move, bad move. Bad move. Because now David has once again lost even more of his kingship. He's bowed to the military. He can't control the military anymore. And Joab, what does he do? What's his reaction? He falls to the ground and. What does he do? We are, I, I know I'm going really fast. We are now in. Uh, well, we are now on the next next page. Twenty-two. 22, 22. 22 yes. Paid homage. Paid homage, the Amalekite bows. Remember that. Rachav and Baana bow. Mephibosheth bows. David bows. Remember how I said bowing is very important in this book. And what is Joab doing? All about it, you, king, but it's all a—it's a show because Joab is pulling the military is pulling away from David. This guy is not the right king. He cannot make the right decisions. He cannot take the actions that he needs to do. He cannot establish the justice that he has to have. God has exploited this through his own sin and through one window of opportunity that could crush David. That is all happening now. David, and it's just to say, I have to tear down this dynasty. He's not the right guy. Someone else has to do the job, right? And so next time, we will see how this all pans out. Have a good day.